0: Welcome
1: to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Varney Quinn. This week...
2: Everyone's kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs going, okay, now what do we do? And that's the next big question from us is now what do we do with our remaining cash?
1: Tim Colpin on Masayoshi Son, founder of SoftBank Group. SoftBank's vision fund losses have topped $5 billion now as the startup investor's strategy comes a cropper in markets looking for profitable companies. Is it a preview of what's to come for the greater venture capital universe? And later,
3: many lawmakers are focused on this and trying to figure out different ways to help parents with these costs. There are all different ways, um, but it's clear that there's like this patchwork system, you know, in a a city like Washington, D.C. that is the the most expensive city in the U.S. for child care. The average annual cost for infant care is $24,243 and that is just for one child.
1: As child care costs increase, associated relief in the tax code stays stagnant, Alexis Leondos explains. First though to the capital markets directly. This week, we saw a massive repricing in the Treasury curve. We also heard Fed officials begin to voice considering a 50 basis point interest rate increase again. Here's St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard.
4: I think we can lock in this disinflationary trend by continuing to have policy rate increases during 2023, even though the real economy looks like it's going to continue to grow and the labor market uh, broadly across the country looks like it remains strong.
1: And here's Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester. But this
4: juncture, the incoming data have not changed my view that we will need to bring the Fed funds rate above five percent and hold it there for some time. Indeed, at our meeting two weeks ago, setting aside what financial market participants expected us to do, I saw a compelling economic case for a 50 basis point increase, which would have brought the top of the target range to 5%.
1: I spoke with Bloomberg Chief Rates Correspondent Garfield Reynolds to gauge bond market reaction to the daily drip of new data and Fed speak. So Garfield, since the last Fed meeting, the two-year bond yield is up about sixty basis points, and Marko Kolanovic pointed out that it's the bond market moving towards the Fed, but the prevailing sentiment is of exuberance and greed. Do you think that's fair?
5: Well, I think it's a, it's a little bit. Uh, I mean, as far as the, the bond market goes, it's definitely received a big shock. You know, both from from the data itself. You know, there've been upside surprises, <gasps> and And also from the Fed's willingness to actually deliver on higher rates and the idea that they would hold them there for longer. Now that's something that was flagged by the Fed last year even as it was starting to slow the pace of rate hikes but the bond market was looking past that and assuming that the impact of last year's extreme rate hikes would be such that the Fed would be able to soon stop hiking rates and in fact would have to turn considering rate cuts Uh, I mean on the greed side if that's talking about what's going on in the equities market where we're seeing some perhaps surprising resilience especially you know the Nasdaq is shrugging off like a 60 basis point jump in the two-year yield has not done much damage to the Nasdaq at all despite tech stocks famously supposedly being yield sensitive now perhaps part of the reason for that is that the economic data have been so resilient in the face of last year's rate hikes so we're kind of in a scenario where perhaps equity markets are judging that good news for the economy is good news for equities even as bonds are deciding a more traditional uh, setup good news for the economy is bad news for bonds
1: yeah, the whole thing is a little bit odd. It feels like there's something that we're missing out on. Anyway, Marco says the market's not just fighting the Fed, but it's taunting the Fed with crypto and meme stocks and unprofitable companies responding best to Fed communications. So I guess he sees it slightly differently that this is some kind of fake out or something on the part of those that are putting money into these particular stocks.
5: Well, I I think there is here ultimately a disconnect in the way the bond market is positioning very deeply inverted yield curve and a persistently inverted yield curve, signalling a lot of concerns about the potential for a major economic slowdown. You've also got, even though the bond market has pushed back, it's expectations for when the Fed will peak and pushed up, the expectations for where it will call a halt to rate hikes. It still sees next year now rather than this year, but next year, it sees 1.5 percentage points of rate cuts. So, you know, that says the bond market sees a recession. Stocks seemingly don't see one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the Eisman call of we don't like to change our market narratives or people get very attached to their market narratives and perhaps the bond market maybe has a little bit better of an ability to not be in denial about certain things, but that seems a little bit too deep. (laughs) Why should the bond market be so much more nuanced and so much more sophisticated than the stock market in some ways?
5: Well, I I think it's more, they look at different calculations, and especially now, you know, one of the things that's feeding this is bonds, again, have yields. So because they have yields, you can buy a bond and still do okay, even if those yields then rise, i.e. the price of bonds go down. That's a reversal of the situation for much of the past decade when yields went down so low that bonds were almost like stocks. You had to buy them on the basis of price appreciation, yeah. not on the basis of carry. But now they've got yields again. So the calculation for you know quite a few bond investors is, hey, 3%, 4%, 4.5%, depending on the instrument. I can buy that and hang on to it and I'll do okay. Whereas equity investors mostly don't look so much at dividends. They're looking for capital appreciation. So they're looking for the idea that earnings are going to improve and we're seem to be having mostly a fairly decent earnings season. And although there are plenty of dire warnings that a slowdown is coming and that will cause an earnings recession, for now, to some extent, they're almost drawing confidence from the Fed's willingness to keep raising rates at a slower pace because that says to them, well, the Fed doesn't think the economy is about to collapse because if the Fed thought the economy was about to collapse, they'd be saying, we're going to stop hiking rates.
1: Yes, exactly. Move to the hold portion of their agenda, assuming that's still on. Fed expectations up to 5.4% now for the terminal rate, and there are even places where you see the market looking at the probability of a hike to 6.1%, and the chances of a hike to 6% now is 0.5%. So that's a 1 in 200
5: chance or something?
1: Yeah, exactly. A 1 in 200 chance. Yeah. So um, not huge, but nevertheless, it's starting to be there, and when anything kind of appears in a market, you really have to take notice. I mean, how quickly can this change again if we get... More communication, which is really just constant at this point.
5: Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it can change you know, rapidly. You know, less than a month ago, the market was mostly expecting that the Fed was going to peak under five percent, and that was despite plenty of commentary from the Fed that five percent was about the minimum where they thought they would go to, and you know, it would only take a couple of data points here you know, if inflation had come in weaker than expected just this week, then you would have had a fairly rapid cooling down in your know, rate expectations, mm-hmm. at, at least until, until and unless you then had Fed officials pushing back saying, yeah, this is not, we don't really believe this. So it's all you know, it's all on the table. And, and like I said, that that constant expectation that you know, next year will bring very steep rate cuts, that underscores The idea that the bond market is worried about what's going to go on with the economy, they're worried that the Fed, or they're pricing for the possibility that the Fed has to go high enough with its rate in order to cool inflation, that it will cause very strong damage to the economy, and that then it will have to rapidly reverse those moves, if not this year, then next year.
1: Now, Garfield, I know you gave a lovely explanation just a moment ago about why bonds are repricing at a different pace to equities and how they're repricing differently, but is there anything special about this market that we can see such large moves in the bond market and really relatively not so large moves in the equity market? Is there something awaiting us? Let's put it that way.
5: Well, I think it's more that we're, we're in a situation where the outlook for Fed policy is very fluid and bonds, uh, your bonds are very focused on how high does the Fed go and when does the Fed stop, uh, and on the idea that you've had the steepest rate hikes in a generation, what's that going to do to the economy? For equity markets, they're, they're looking at it as like, okay, so we had all these big rate hikes, the economy seems to be coping okay with that. And most importantly, okay, even if Fed's not stopping, it's slowed down. It's very unlikely it's going to do more than 25 basis points of time. Uh, so the disruptive phase is done mm. and dusted. And for for equities who who price, you know, sort of second, third order impact from Fed moves, whereas bonds are pricing sort of first order or zero order impact, that that means they can be a bit more relaxed about, you know, are we going to get 225 basis point hikes or 325 basis point hikes? Yes. Whereas for bonds, that, that's a more disruptive scenario.
1: Chief rates correspondent Garfield Reynolds there. He stays with us, so stay tuned for more of that conversation. And later.
2: The thing is, he's kind of exhausted most of his funds. He's pretty much invested all of the money that he has in these funds. And so all investors and muscle himself can do is just sit around and wait for some of these to, to come to fruition. And right now, a lot of these companies are not going to IPO. It's not a very good IPO market right now. Maybe a year from now it will be. So everyone's kind of still sitting around twiddling their thumbs going, okay, now what do we do? And that's the next big question.
1: Tim Culpin on Massa Sun's Dilemma. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion, I'm Vonnie Quinn. Let's return to Garfield Reynolds now, Bloomberg Chief Rates Correspondent, and some of the prevailing questions raised by market moves and Fed speakers this week. Monetary Hawks Loretta Mester, Cleveland Fed President. The
4: FOMC has come in a appreciable way in bringing policy from a very accommodative stance to a restrictive one, but I do believe we have more work to do. Indeed, at our meeting two weeks ago, setting aside what financial market participants expected us to do, I saw a compelling economic case for a 50 basis point increase which would have brought the top of the target range to 5%.
1: And Jim Bullard, St. Louis Fed president, were out towards the end of the week with words of caution for markets assuming the Fed won't return to larger rate hikes if necessary.
4: The benefits of getting inflation under control quickly are uh, vast, and uh, we do want to achieve that. But if we don't, we risk this replay. So I think that's the thing to watch out for here, is that we uh, don't do enough on inflation, And we uh, get a replay of the 1970s.
1: This all after a slew of hard data from retail sales to producer prices, which showed inflation clear and present and raised questions about market expectations for disinflation over the coming months. Let's get back to our conversation. Cameron Christ brought up something interesting on M live when it comes to the so-called lag that's long and variable he was asking the question how long and variable is the delay with which rates work in a world of forward guidance and literally stream of consciousness communication do you have any impressions that this long and variable lag has changed at all in the minds of fed watchers or fed governors or you know anyone attached to the Fed in the last year or so
5: well I it's a very it is a very interesting point I, I mean I think in financial markets, uh, you know, the lag is is much less. Uh, in fact, you could you could even argue that they're, they're almost almost a reverse lag. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had uh, financial markets moving, like getting ahead of themselves, perhaps moving to price in the pivot before the Fed had even seriously started to consider it. Um, but the the question for Fed, and this of course is one of the things you want to remember. You have the Fed; that's there. It's run by economists who are looking at what is this going to do to Main Street and Wall Street. Usually, only matters much to them from the point of view of you know what's the impact on on Main Street that Wall Street is transmitting. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been a very large run up in mortgage rates and in borrowing costs for you know, the rest of the economy. And even if those costs have come down, they're still much, much higher than they were, you know, six months ago, a year ago. So that takes its time to feed through. You could even argue there's the potential that the lag is going to be longer than usual, the reason for that being, and this is something central bankers have pointed to, there's a lot of households out there that built up some very strong buffers during the pandemic when you know, there was a lot of money being pumped into the economy. So, if you've got those savings buffers, then the impact of monetary policy increasing your costs via the interest rate mechanism. So, you know, if you're a business, you're paying. You're having to pay more to get funding. If you're a uh, household, depending on, you know, if you're not on a variable rate mortgage, it doesn't matter so much, other than the indirect impact that people who take out new mortgages face higher costs. So that might be you're less willing to pay the sort of prices you want for your home. But all of those effects are going to take longer, potentially, to feed through the economy precisely because the Fed and others, you know, looking at it globally, Fed and others and the governments that they uh, were acting in concert with, they pumped an enormous amount of money into the economy during the pandemic. They wanted to make sure the economy kept working. They almost certainly, to a man and woman, overstimulated during the pandemic, left too much money out there on the table. Now they're trying to scoop that up. It might take them longer than in previous cycles
1: speaking of which the lale Brainer departure will it have an impact on the SCP the dot plot
5: well a lot depends on who Replaces is going her, right? to replace her, yes. I think um, Wall Street
1: sort of assumes it's going to have an impact on the dot plot but th- we really don't know do we
5: no no we were then I mean the I suppose the the judgment rightly or wrongly is that she was pretty close to the dovish side, so it's it's unlikely to lead to a lower dot plot because you would be unlikely to find somebody who would out dove mm. uh, Brainard. Um, you know, then again, I don't see. I, I haven't seen anybody saying that the administration is going to be looking to appoint somebody who's significantly more hawkish. Uh, you know, given that they need to do plenty of borrowing, so uh, it might really not have a huge impact.
1: Garfield, weakness in the dollar that we have had a recent bounce is back near one hundred and four again. The DXY, how is it impacting or being impacted by rates these days? Which has the is impacting the other?
5: Well, uh, yeah, I mean the the ramping up in rate expectations and what that's done to treasury yields has definitely yeah you know, revived the U.S. dollar's level, returned some strength to the dollar at a time when the general expectation was this year that. The dollar would weaken. Um, so far, that's not having too much of an impact on on broader markets because it's simply sort of you know recovered some of the ground that it had lost. If it does continue to rise and continues to push beyond its previous highs, then you might start to see that have a bit of an impact, especially in emerging markets who are actually starting to look a bit more vulnerable. Both because of you know that factor, and also because of some idiosyncratic concerns in places like India and Brazil, um, that, uh, that, that that they might not be the the outperformers uh, th- this year that some people at the beginning of this year had said that they they would be relative to more developed markets.
1: Marco Kalanovic again to bring him up is warning of Volmageddon 2.0 thanks to the explosive rise of short dated options. And Goldman Sachs has found that such options actually make up more than 40% of the S&P 500's total trading volume these days, which is almost double what it was six months ago. Is it something that you have seen much focus on or that you are concerned about when you look at the market moves?
5: No, I haven't seen a huge amount of focus on it. I mean, there's certainly plenty of concerns at times that you get some very sudden moves at particular times of the day, and that that may well be linked to, you know, to, to options trades uh, or settlements. But the uh, you know, so far there's not a huge amount of anxiousness that options in and of themselves are going to cause you know, ma- major difficulties. Um, that's mostly seen as being noise rather yes. than rather than signal.
1: Right. Uh, He points out that what would happen is uh, the big move might force options dealers to unwind a large amount of their positions. But I guess in that instance, it might be contained. But anyway, if it happens, we'll have more time to talk about it. (laughs) Bloomberg Chief Rates correspondent Garfield Reynolds there. Next up, we'll take a look at one example of what might be becoming a broader trend. Japanese startup investor Masayoshi Sun is sitting on billions of dollars of losses as market sentiment turns, away from initial public offerings and from growth companies not currently profitable. Venture capitalists, well, it's just not their time right now. But can they sit out the current malaise for their industry?
2: You know, the global markets going up and down, the private market you know, the startups and VCs is going up and down, but it's very opaque. So we don't always know what the valuation of an unlisted company is. But with SoftBank, we can look very, very closely at how they're doing and People believe in SoftBank, they believe in muscle, they believe in his vision, but you really have to be ready for a white knuckle ride if you, if you want to have to ride these dips and troughs, which uh, the company's been going through over the last year or so.
1: We'll chat with Bloomberg's Tim Culpin about what one VC investor is doing to mollify his investor base. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform. Stay tuned. This is Bloomberg Opinion.
6: Com.
4: Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at forum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie
1: Quinn. Japanese billionaire Masayoshi Son's SoftBank Group said this month its Vision Fund posted an investment loss of $5.5 billion. And total startup investing was down 90% year over year. The tech investment company has invested in more than 450 companies since the launch of its first of two Vision funds in 2017. Companies such as TikTok owner ByteDance, WeWork, FTX, Alibaba. Well, in total, it spent more than $140 billion over the five years. These days, Sun himself says he's focused on taking UK chipmaker Arm public and a stepping back from SoftBank's day-to-day operations. I caught up with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Tim Culpin in Taipei to see what Masayoshi Sun could do to boost flat- Lagging returns. So, Tim, before we get into the nitty-gritty of Massa's options, first, tell us a little bit about SoftBank and why its fortunes are so captivating.
2: Well, one thing about SoftBank is about seven years ago, Masayoshi Son, who founded the company as, first of all, a software company, selling software, that is, and then became more of a telco. And now he's become essentially the world's largest VC and he has a couple of funds which all combined have close to $160 billion of capital available. And so the company that is listed in Japan, SoftBank Group Corp., essentially rises and falls based on the value of his investments in other companies. And some of the most famous examples include Uber, WeWork, or the We Company, and even ByteDance, which is famous for TikTok. Masayoshi Son's big early bet really done very well for him is Alibaba and they still hold a significant stake in Alibaba. So it's a fascinating company because right now we can see, you know, the global markets going up and down. The private markets, you know, the startups and VCs is going up and down, but it's very opaque. So we don't always know what the valuation of an unlisted company is. But with SoftBank, we can look very, very closely at how they're doing and the last year or so, it's not been doing very well. More and more of its private investments have been getting written down by a certain amount, and its public investments mostly going down. So, if you're an investor in SoftBank, really, you're kind of investing in this massive kind of ETF, mutual fund, private equity fund of uh, a mix of different investments, mm. and. People believe in SoftBank, they believe in Masa, they believe in his vision, but you really have to be ready for a white knuckle ride if you you want to have to ride these dips and troughs, which uh, the company's been going through over the last year or so.
1: Does Japanese monetary policy have much of an impact on the vision funds, or is it more what the Federal Reserve does? In other words, are we witnessing the same thing as we are in the US, where investors have suddenly remembered that they prefer it when a company actually turns a profit?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, so if you are an investor in SoftBank Group Corp, it is a you know, Japanese-traded company, then if you're sitting around with you know, a few hundred thousand yen to invest or a few hundred million yen to invest and the UK, where am I going to my money for the next year? You might not be wanting to put it in SoftBank because a lot of what they're invested in is stuff that is going to be impacted from a tighter monetary policy. Uh, They do have, for example, a telecom company called SoftBank Corp which gets very confusing. So SoftBank Group owns SoftBank Corp. Yes. And they own, for example, Yahoo Japan. They own the, the Apple Line. And these are very much consumer-focused brands. And these are the kinds of businesses that don't do well in tight monetary policy. So instead, if you've got a like, you know money sitting around, you're more likely to you know put it into, say, uh, defensive stocks, food, or FMCG, those kind of things that do well. In a downturn, you go, well, why would I put my money in a risky stock like SoftBank? in a downturn when monetary policy is tight. And that's a bit of the problem that, that SoftBank stock faces right now, is there's probably better places for a lot of people to put their money in these kind of riskier times.
1: So give us an idea of who actually invests in SoftBank. You did mention some known quantities there, and in the Vision Funds more specifically.
2: Well, the Vision Fund, there's actually now two Vision Funds. So the first Vision Fund got a lot of Middle Eastern, like, sovereign wealth fund money. And what's interesting about that is a lot of that money came in as preferred shares, which essentially work like a bond where they have to pay out every year. They have to pay out a minimum amount of money. So they're on the hook for 3 to $4 billion of payouts every year to those early investors. The rest of it is, uh, with Foxconn, for example, is one of the investors in the vision fund. They're just kind of a hodgepodge of other investors. What's interesting is they then opened up a second vision fund. And they really couldn't get much interest globally from anybody else. So the second vision fund is almost entirely SoftBank's own money and the management team. who seems to have a bit of extra cash available. So you've got, you know, in the order of a few dozen billions of dollars from SoftBank itself into its own second vision fund. Mm. And that's a huge bet on itself. And that's really the issue going forward is that time all their own money into their own ability to be at VC, which is a uh, very mattering experience.
1: Well, as you say, the two Vision funds are down a combined something like $5 billion. The first Vision fund expires in six years. The second does have an extra three years. So Massa does have a little bit of time. How does he deliver for investors? Does he need the IPO market to revive? What happens if the yen continues
2: to weaken? Well, this is a fascinating problem. You know, he has limited ability to change the IPO market. The one company they have in their portfolio that's really waiting to be IPO'd is a British chipmaker. They were at one point going to sell it to NVIDIA. That didn't happen for antitrust reasons. So they're actually really committed to getting it done this year. So they really would hope for the IPO market to turn around. Beyond that, they're sitting on cash. And my estimate is they're going to use that cash to buy back more shares because the easiest, laziest way to prop up a stock is to just buy the stock. And they've been doing that over the last year. And it's actually worked. It's, it's had an effect. It's helped boost the stock. I think that they will take some of the remaining cash they've got left. And if they can go out and borrow more cash, I think they will then go back and buy stock bank group shares to prop it up to tide investors over until the IPO market happens. And then they can start to reap the rewards of these big investments they've done over the years into private startups.
1: Well, speaking of buying back oceans of stock, could he do something very bold, and this has been in the ether, but something like what Michael Dell did and take SoftBank back private?
2: I, You know what, that is the bet. There's a lot of rumour about this. It would happen a management buyout. You know, Michael Dell's approach all those years ago was brilliant. He executed it, the controversial, but he managed it. And it's exactly what Dell, the company, needed to take it out of kind of public view and, and do what you need to do behind the scenes. There is thought that, one of the reasons why Masayoshi's son is using SoftBank's own cash to buy back shares is he can then cancel them. So every remaining shareholder has a higher concentration of shares. And if he keeps doing that, it's kind of like a creeping buyout because Masa's own holdings in the company then increase without him having to spend a dollar of his own money. And so there is a feeling that there is a chance that sometime in the next year or two master himself might get together with say private equity or banks or other people and just launch a buyout for the company
1: itself. Well one place it doesn't look like he can call upon is Elliot. Elliot dumped its stake in SoftBank which (laughs) may not be a good sign. Elliot seems to do pretty well usually the activist investor obviously.
2: Yeah I think it would be a wonderful irony if he jumped into bed with Elliot and decided to do a management buyout. I don't think that would happen. Mm. Um, You'd have to very well. It is a Japanese company, so you have to start knocking on the doors of Japanese financials first. Maybe Japanese private equity, maybe local banks. You know, there's no discounting the fact that they could. You know, try and get a big overseas private equity come in and help them out. But I think they would look locally first.
1: Is Softbank too big to fail? Would it have some kind of a contagious effect on the Japanese economy or on the market if it were to if its stock were to plummet, let's say, which is not happening, we put that out there.
2: It is interestingly enough, it is huge, but only a small portion of its holdings are in Japanese companies, and even though it's a somewhat large company, it's not you know it's not the largest Japanese company out there. So you know, I don't think the stock will go to zero. There is value. There is actually a net asset value. and You can actually go to SoftBank's IR website every day and they track it in real time. You know, they own a big chunk of Alibaba. They own, um, which has a valuation, even though it's private, you can somewhat value it. They own a big chunk of listed companies because some of their portfolio companies have, have ipo They own a telco. So they definitely have an asset asset value. The company's stock Creates a huge discount in their asset value, but it, I don't see it going to zero, and so that's something to know. There is a flaw to how low softbank could go, but beyond that, it's not so huge that you know its collapse would cause a systemic problem in Japan, and therefore you know banks and the government have to come and bail it out. On the flip side, what they invest in, not a large share of it, is actually in Japanese startups and so forth. It's mostly you know U.S., European, Asian startups. Mm. So there's no systemic reasons why there is a flaw on how low this stuff could go.
1: Bloomberg Opinions, Tim Colpin. Anyone with kids or anyone who knows anyone with kids will tell you they're getting more expensive. It's not really their fault. Inflation is hitting everything, including childcare costs. Thing is, the associated relief in the tax code has stayed stagnant. Bloomberg Opinions, Alexis Leondis explains. So Alexis, explain to us what's happened over the last number of years with childcare credits.
3: Sure. So as almost anyone who has children knows, the cost of child care feels astronomical right now. And if you look back at the data, it now takes up almost 20 percent of the median family income per child in major cities. The problem is that there's a tax benefit that some workers use to offset either daycare or nanny expenses called the Dependent Care Flexible Spending Account. And the cap on how much you can contribute to that account every year has stayed the same since 1986
1: since 1986. Correct. Yep.
3: Almost 40 years that we've seen this $5,000 cap which perhaps back in the 1980s was an appropriate amount of money and could cover the annual cost of childcare, you know, when it was about, say, $3,500. But now, you know, in major cities, the annual cost for an infant in daycare is more than $17,000. And for a toddler, it's more than 12300 So it really feels like this contribution has not kept pace with the cost for well, daycare.
1: Who are the lobbying groups that are trying to change this? And is there any possibility that it might get changed?
3: It's part of this larger problem where you do have various credits and deductions in the tax code that are not adjusted for inflation. Many are, but there are some very, very significant ones like this contribution cap for the dependent care FSA that hasn't changed. Likewise, with the tax credit that families get for dependent or child care, same sort of thing. So I think what really has to happen is you have to see across the board, all these credits, these deductions, everything has to take inflation into account, especially when we see environments when inflation is higher, but hits taxpayers more.
1: Absolutely. Now, does it also depend on how much the parents make and whether it's a two-salary home or a one-salary home?
3: Right. That's a great question. In order to qualify or be eligible for this dependent care FSA, you have to have two working parents. And unlike other credits and deductions with the Dependent Care FSA, there's no income limit. So really anyone can qualify to be able to take advantage and put money into this account. And the way it works basically is an employee elects to have a certain amount withheld, a maximum of $5,000 from their paycheck that gets put into the account. So that pre-tax income that's going in there, the parent will pay the child care expenses out of pocket and then will get reimbursed by the employer from that account.
1: Now do we have any data on how many employers offer this or how many people take advantage of it?
3: So it's about sixty percent of employers, according to you know, the most recent surveys we've seen. The thing that a taxpayer has to be careful of is you have dependent care FSAs, but then in addition, you also have what's called the tax credit for child care as well. But that's a little bit more complicated. There's an income cap on that it gets phased out completely once parents make more than four hundred thirty eight thousand dollars. And it helps with expenses up to three thousand for families with one child or six thousand for two or more children. But there's no double- Dipping. So if you're taking advantage of this tax credit, if you're eligible for it, you can't also try to get reimbursed for expenses that you were using the credit for.
1: Now, you said it takes more than $12,000 a year to have an infant in daycare. On the one hand, you can understand how it would cost that to have an infant in your care for that amount of time for a whole year. On the other hand, how is somebody supposed to afford that out of pocket, especially knowing that that's just going to go up with inflation? Right. I mean,
3: that's the problem. And many lawmakers are focused on this and trying to figure out different ways to help parents with these costs, you know, and whether it's having a longer leave or if it's coming into like having universal preschool for three year olds and four year olds, there are all different ways, but it's clear that there's this patchwork system. Some stuff is through the federal government, some is through states individually. Some states will give subsidies to help shoulder some of the burden. But at the end of the day, when you have these costs and they're only getting worse because of the recent shortage in staffing at daycares. And in turn, the costs are going up and up. In a city like Washington, D.C., that is the most expensive city in the U.S. for child care, the average annual cost for infant care is $24,243, and that is just for one child.
1: Bloomberg Opinions' Alexis Leandres. That does it for this week's Opinion. Don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And as always, do send us your thoughts. Email me at vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. I'm Vani Quinn. This is Bloomberg Opinion.